Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My next guest is Kier Giles, and we will be discussing his book, Russia's War on Everybody and What It Means for You, that has been published by Bloomsbury in 2023. Kier Giles has spent his entire career watching, studying, and explaining Russia. He is a senior consulting fellow at the United Kingdom's Royal Institute of International Affairs, also known as Chatham House, and also works with the Conflict Studies Research Center, which is a group of deep subject matter experts on Eurasian security, formerly attached to the British Ministry of Defense. He is also a regular contributor to research projects on Russian security issues in the United States, United Kingdom, and Europe. Uh, Kara Giles, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Uh, We usually like to begin our uh, interviews by asking our guests, Tell us a little bit about yourself and the backstory behind writing this book. Yeah, certainly. I'm a professional explainer of Russia. I've spent about the last couple of decades watching Russia, studying it, and uh, trying to help people understand why the country does the things it does, which, of course, has become particularly topical lately because so few people were able to understand Russia launching its invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. This book that we're talking about today is about a different war, a bigger war, and a war that's been going on for much longer. It's Russia's war on everybody, not just on Ukraine, and not just in open fighting, but the way Russia attacks people around the world without going to war in the way that we understand it, all of the other means that it uses to reach out and and attack people. So I was writing this book in uh, 2021 before the war on Ukraine was escalated in the way it was with the full-scale invasion in February last year. And a lot of the themes that were in the book, uh, of course, were permanent. They hadn't really, didn't really need to change a great deal with that new invasion. Now, some people have thought that if it's a book about Russia's war, then you have to completely rewrite it when Russia actually changes that war. But so many of the things that were happening before that war started have continued unchanged. So the the war is about how, uh, excuse me, the book is about how Russia, Russian actions affect all of us around the world, hence the title Russia's War on Everybody. So I looked at all of the different ways in which Russia looks to, to gain power at our expense. And I tried to do that through looking at how it affects ordinary people. And that's what the book is built around, interviews with real people from around the world, um, 40 different people in a dozen countries and, and four different continents, just seeing how what Russia does affects them over and above what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. Yeah, that was actually my next question. Uh, what type of sources did you 
used uh, to consult for this book. And you did talk a lot about that in the preface, uh, I believe, and you just mentioned that. That's right. Yes, there are a lot of news stories, uh, news sources that uh, that go into this book, because, of course, it's talking about things that are happening um, all around the world at the moment. But there are also two other things that I lean on in order to, to try and explain what's going on. First of all, the, the historical roots of Russian behavior. So going back further in time to look at where this all comes from. And second, trying to look at the stories that are behind the headlines. So not what's actually reaching the news in all of our different countries, but actually the stories that don't make it into the news. Because for every high profile story that you hear about what Russia has done somewhere around the world, there are dozens of others that are affecting people that never do make it into those media headlines. And it's those stories that I wanted to uncover just to, to show how universal this is and how it's not just occasional uh, actions by Russia that reach the headlines that, that we should be focused on, but actually it's a steady drumbeat of hostile actions going on all the time. So that's why I tried to focus these interviews that the book has built around on people that nobody will have ever heard of. Uh, you get to hear a lot in this kind of book from diplomats and government ministers and generals and so on. I wanted to get to ordinary people that wouldn't normally um, see their name featured in a, in a story like this. So um, law enforcement officers, soldiers who are uh, just uh, not not officers, but just find themselves facing Russia on the front line, um, cybersecurity specialists who work behind the scenes, and so on. Now, what are some common misconceptions people have about Russia, especially in uh, the West, in your view? Well, one of the, the great favors that Vladimir Putin has done for us all is dispelling some of those misconceptions, because there was uh, a period when it was actually quite hard for, for people in my profession to explain what Russia wanted and how it was going about getting it, because it made no sense to people in the West. It was hard to understand why there was this, this country that apparently uh, was coming at us as a threat from, from a different era, uh, was trying to reconstitute its empire and was completely unconstrained and lashing out and doing damage wherever it could. Now, since February of 2022, it's very much easier for people to understand that because President Putin has not only launched his invasion, we've not only seen the the appalling atrocities that Russian troops have carried out in Ukraine, but also he's explained very clearly about why he wants to do this. Uh, we're no longer hearing that this was about Russia feeling threatened by, by NATO accepting new member states. Instead, he's he's laid out his vision for reconstituting the Russian empire in a, in a way that comes from a previous century. So with all of that, it's very much easier now for, for people in my job to explain Russia because that basic disbelief has already been overcome. And that's the reason why the book is actually dedicated to Vladimir Putin, because he's made our job so very much easier by showing just what it is that Russia wants and just how important it is to defend ourselves against that. Now, Getting into this contest between Russia or contrast between Russia, the West especially, what would be like the most significant differences between the two in in your view, since you study this uh, area? 
it's really hard to know where to start when pointing at the differences because there are so many and they affect so many different areas of how a country behaves both to its own people and internationally. And so many of them, so many of those differences actually go deep into the roots of, of Russian society and behaviors that you actually have within the country itself that are then projected outwards as well. So the the basic starting point that we've always tried to suggest people have in mind is just abandon everything that you take for granted in terms of how a country behaves. If you're coming from a Western liberal democratic company in country in uh, Europe or North America, just forget everything that so-called makes sense to you, because none of that is actually going to apply to Russia. What we're dealing with is a profoundly different society and one that hasn't been through many of the processes that make Western democracies what they are. It hasn't had the same tracks of societal development. Instead, it's a, an unreformed Mongol Muscovite state which is why it behaves in a manner that comes from previous centuries now, not only on a state level, but also the individuals that pursue Russian policy uh, are doing so in a manner which is shocking to us because it's reminiscent of, of centuries past. Now, how does the Russian leadership, uh, not just Vladimir Putin, but also all the other major leaders, how do they tend to view the West? Uh, what indications have they uh, given about that issue? Well, it's a very important point that you made that it is not just Putin, and I suspect we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. The current leadership as a whole has a very distinctive worldview that's been formed uh, not only by their own experience of, of growing up in Soviet times and then having that taken away from them with the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also the Russian tradition, the Russian idea of the West as both an enemy and something to on occasion be envied. And the idea that Russia is a desirable target and the, the West will actually uh, look for opportunities to destroy it and dismember it because it's uh, it has something that is that is enviable. So a lot of different preconceptions about Russia's place in the world that actually are extremely toxic and extremely damaging because they set Russia and the West up for conflict. They see the West as an enemy and as an adversary for a lot of reasons that actually have no real basis in fact, but they are the reasons that are driving Russia to carry out this long campaign of hostility that goes back long before uh, the 2022 invasion of Ukraine, long before the seizure of Crimea in 2014. It's actually a steady state that you can trace back through decades and centuries. Now, you just mentioned uh, the, their vision of their place in the world. What According to them, what is Russia's proper place in the world, uh, according to, to their worldview? They really want Russia to be in the position it was in 1914, when Russia was a great power with an empire, was one of the, the poles of power within the world. But more than that, it also occupied a position that was respected and understood by other great powers. So Russia has come to the end of its empire, finally, after the collapse of the, the Russian Empire in 1917 and of the Soviet Empire in 1991. But that realization that it is a former imperial power still hasn't sunk in. So President Putin has said very clearly that the objective of his assault on Ukraine is to restore things to their natural rightful state where Ukraine is actually governed from Moscow. He says it's not a real country. It's something that was invented on the territory of the former Russian Empire. Now, of course, that is a major problem for any other 
countries that were formerly part of the Russian Empire, even if now we think of them as full-fledged members of the EU, NATO, part of the Western democratic community of nations, because Putin has stated very clearly that their existence is a historical mistake that he wants to correct. Yeah, and uh, getting into history, how does Putin and the Russian leadership generally uh, interpret Russian uh, history? And you kind of gave a little bit of a a hint of that with 1914 being like their reference point. Is that correct? Yes, uh, there are there are plenty of different reference points that uh, Russia draws on to define its ideal end state. Uh, 1914 is one. Uh, 1945 is another because a central element of the Russian myth of its statehood is the fact that it defeated Nazi Germany in, in 1945. And then Nazi Germany had the the Nuremberg trials, which assigned uh, guilt for its crime, something that the Soviet Union never went through. So there are different elements that, of history that Russia selectively chooses to, to define how it would like itself to be seen. But that, of course, selective memory means that other parts that are less palatable get suppressed. And it's now actually a criminal offense in Russia to recall those parts of history that are inconvenient because they they do conflict with this Russian state narrative. So it is an idealized and very deceptive idea of Russia's actual real history. And that's another thing we need to bear in mind when having these conversations with Moscow, that the the basic facts that they're proceeding from in trying to define how relations between countries around how they arrived at how they are, are completely unrecognizable from the outside world. Yeah, and kind of raises another question of, do they emphasize like Russian victories like in World War II, for example, or do they emphasize like Russian humiliations uh, at the hands of the West? Like, oh, we got to correct this uh, in a way, uh, almost kind of like that stab in the back type myth that usually uh, occurs when there's a major defeat for a major power, most notably famously with Germany in World War I. Is there something kind of like a similar dynamic in in Russia? Well, as so often, when when you ask either or questions about Russia, the the answer is very often, well, actually both. Yes, there is the the notion of Russia being the the conquering power, the one that uh, put uh, the one that put the greatest contribution into defeating Nazi Germany. There's also the the narrative of humiliation, the idea that Russia was defeated at the end of the Cold War, and then instead of what actually happened, which is uh, the Western community of nations stepping in to try to aid Russia, pouring in billions of uh, billions of dollars of finances, vast amounts of food aid because the country couldn't feed itself, and trying to bring it into the international community of nations as a new state that had emerged from the USSR, that's now been flipped through 180 degrees. And you have this uh, this idea that the West instead was exploiting and humiliating Russia at its weakest point. It is uh, it's a total reversal of what happened in real life, but it's one of the driving narratives that actually defines this idea uh, that Putin has that it is time for revenge and for Russia to stand up and take back what it rightfully belongs to it. Yeah. And you do talk about how this narrative, these messages are being promoted in Russian media. Can you explain this in uh, greater detail? How do they do this and what messages are kind of given media attention in Russia? It's hard for somebody who hasn't experienced it to to describe 
just how different the world is when you see it through Russian media and just how unrecognizable, not just events that are happening day to day in the outside world, but also um, the past of different countries is as well. And the, when Russia promotes these historical narratives, these ideas about what happened and how the world got the way it is, we need to remember that this has been going on for years and decades. So the, the control of the Russian state media and its, uh, its channeling into delivering very consistent messages that, um, that fit with this view of the world goes back well into the, uh, the early stages of President Putin's tenure. What that means is you have not only the oldest generations that are returning to their comfort zone in terms of what they've been told all their lives about uh, about the outside world, but also you have young people growing up who, if they don't have access to alternative sources of information, if they haven't made the effort to go and look at what's really happening in the outside world, will have had this consistent picture delivered to them for their whole of their of their conscious lives. And that has an effect. And the effect, unfortunately, we see in the behaviors of young Russian soldiers in Ukraine. They don't know any different that the West is conspiring to attack Russia, that Ukraine is run by Nazis, that anybody who says Ukraine is a country is by definition an enemy of Russia and needs to be dealt with in the most savage means of uh, means possible. It is a tragic result of this this relentless propaganda that has been delivered into Russians' homes for over a decade now. Now, you also talk about how Russia tries to present this narrative and message uh, beyond its borders, and you call this a strategy of neither war nor peace. Uh, can you explain that in uh, greater detail? Russian military thought leaders, the thinking part of the of the Russian armed forces, have put an awful lot of effort into trying to understand the nature of modern war. Now, some people might think, looking at what's happening in Ukraine, that they got it wildly wrong. But the roots of that are the, the situation in the 1990s and early 2000s, when Russia felt that its armed forces were broken and incapable. They had the defeats in Chechnya. They found that they were not able to deliver military effect in the way that they had been accustomed to. And so uh, they went off and had a good think about how you win major wars, especially observing the experience of, of Western powers with their high-tech wars and also dealing with counterinsurgency. And they emerged from that with new theories of war which explored the boundaries between war and peace, between competition and conflict. And so a lot of discussion went into exactly what the threshold of war is and how you prosecute wars, not only how Russia does it, but also how other countries do it as well. Now, the problem that we have in terms of what Russia thinks it can get away with without going to war with the West is that all of that theorizing was overtaken by events. Uh, Russia came up with its own ideas about where these boundaries lie, but then they pushed at them and they receded because whenever they undertook some kind of hostile action against the West, sometimes actions which were indistinguishable from acts of war, they didn't get the response that they were expecting from Western powers who were more concerned about maintaining a good relationship than about responding appropriately to what Russia was doing. And so the boundaries of what Russia could do without going to war just kept expanding and expanding. And uh, is this related to what you also termed uh, information and psychological influence uh, operations? 
That's one of the aspects of how Russia seeks to get its way without necessarily actually going to war. Uh, information and psychological influence is one of the technical terms from within Russian information warfare, using the power of information to get its way in a way that uh, a lot of people have experienced if they've come up against Russian disinformation, for example, simply the propaganda, um, the trolls and bots that we see on social media, uh, what you hear from, from RT, Sputnik, and so on, but also so far deeper and more pernicious means of influencing our societies. Uh, like, for example, the agents of influence, the people who are deeply embedded within different parts of Western societies to try to get uh, those countries to do what Russia wants as opposed to what is for their own good. People who are directly advising, for example, governments and ministers, people embedded in the media, academia and so on, all of whom are trying to steer the direction of a, of a given country's policy towards letting Russia get away with what it wants to do. There are lots and lots of different aspects of information warfare. This particular one, information and psychological influence, is about uh, the art of persuasion, but it's a persuasion in a highly toxic way. It's persuasion to serve Russia's interests as opposed to your own. Yeah, this has also been debated in the West under the label of uh hybrid warfare and uh, gray zone uh, operations. I uh, had a previous interview with Over Friedman uh, about that with his book on that on that subject. And uh, yeah, so a lot of people in the West when hearing about this might think, oh, this is kind of like an example of Russian soft power and uh, or what we would commonly call soft power. Could you kind of explain that concept a little bit, uh, that terminology for anybody listening who doesn't understand it yes that analogy doesn't really work uh russia doesn't do soft power russia can't even say soft power because if you try to translate it into russian um sila sila is uh the word you use for power but it's the same as use for force rather than uh rather than the power we have in mind and it's the same word as you have in varojon sila which is the armed forces so when western countries talk about soft power they're talking about the power of attraction they're talking about the power of persuasion in a, a positive way. Russia doesn't have that same concept. When they try to conceptualize soft power, it is everything other than actually sending in tanks. So even military measures, even military threats come under this bracket, but it is uh, coercive measures. It's means of uh, inducing an enemy to do what you want rather than persuading them or attracting them, actually forcing them. So it is a, it's a totally different means of, uh, of getting your way. And you're right. All of these things have been given different names over time. There's hybrid and gray zone warfare, as you said. There's sub-threshold warfare. They're always to try to, to capture what Russia is doing that does doesn't actually quite tip over into the kind of open conflict we see in Ukraine at the moment. Now, prior to the war in Ukraine, the major international crisis we recently uh, dealt with was uh, COVID-19. And Russia actually tried to kind of make a play on the international stage by releasing their Sputnik uh, uh, vaccine. But uh, you kind of go into some detail, like how did Russia respond to the COVID-19 uh, crisis of 2020. 
Yes, it is. It's a really interesting case study because it gives you so many insights into to Russian statecraft, the very specific ways in which Russia responded to the crisis, not only in protecting itself, but also exploiting it in, in attacking other countries. First of all, some, some context. We talked about the ways in which Russia uh, reaches out to harm other societies. For a long time before the emergence of COVID, Russia was sponsoring and facilitating anti-vaccination movements in foreign countries and Western democracies because it suits Russia for them to be suffering public health crises. And the, the cynicism behind that operation was just demonstrated by the fact that when COVID finally did arrive and we're facing a global pandemic, rather than shut those operations down, they just put vastly more resources into them to try to cause a bigger problem for, for the target countries. Because in Russia's view of international security and zero-sum view of security, anything that harms its adversaries by comparison makes Russia stronger. Now, meanwhile, of course, that had a blowback effect on Russia itself, because you, even if you try to insulate your society from the outside world, you can't be propagandizing against vaccination around the world and then trying to persuade your own citizens to take up your own national vaccine, especially when those citizens are well aware of the, the state of Russian medicine and therefore are instinctively distrustful to something which has been developed in Russia itself and is set up in competition with foreign vaccines on the basis of some very dodgy statistics. So you already have all of these elements of Russian statecraft uh, in play to make it a very distinctive response. But then on top of that, uh, Russia tries to sell the Sputnik vaccine around the world, uh, fails to fails to deliver, delivers dodgy um, and and suspect uh, batches of vaccine, falsifies the figures that go into it, because that, too, is a, an absolutely standard Russian habit and tries to exploit the coronavirus epidemic for its own propaganda purposes and to, to try to gain influence. So it is a, a completely different response to how other countries try by and large to cooperate between themselves to contain the spread of the virus now what the what role does the russian military and military service play in russian society and this has definitely been in recent discussions about about russia the news because of the recent mobilizations for the uh, war in ukraine that's right it has changed over time, and for the time being, the, the Russian military is still riding on the popularity that it got as a result of it, the boost to its uh, its its funding and its salaries and so on. They came uh, in, the, in the aftermath of Russia receiving huge amounts of money from energy revenues in the, the mid-2000s. That led to an enormous overhaul of Russia's military potential and to lots of re-equipment, uh, transformation, and boost for the president prestige of the, the military and society, which has taken a hit now because uh, mobilization is not a popular measure. People have uh, voted with their feet to try to avoid getting caught up in Russia's war on Ukraine. Well, hundreds of thousands of people have left the country to try to uh, to try to not be called up to fight the war. So again, it's in a it's in a state of transition. Uh, but for the time being, because from Russia, if you look at the war on Ukraine, you don't see what the rest of the world sees. You don't see the atrocities carried out by Russian soldiers. If you do see them, you see a justification for them. You don't see that this is a, a colonial war of reconquest. Instead, it's a, a war to protect Russia against the outside world. So none of the things that you might assume would be reputationally fatal for, for an armed force in its own society is actually having the same kind of impact in Russia.
Now, you mentioned the uh, boom from uh, oil revenue. In what ways did the, did Russia, the Russian leadership, try to rebuild the uh, armed forces? Because I know for at least in the 1990s, it kind of deteriorated because of the lack of funding. And, you know, in some ways they were dependent on their old Soviet hardware. That's right. There was a deterioration in the 1990s, and that came through very strongly in 1994 and 1999, when Russia was trying to, to fight a war in Chechnya and found it extremely hard to bring together uh, competent and, and equipped fighting forces from across the country to fight a relatively small campaign. But as soon as the money started pouring in on the, off the back of that spike in energy prices in the middle of the 2000s, uh, Russia turned on the taps to, to send a lot of it to the armed forces. And you saw some things happening immediately. You saw um, officers being paid their salaries, which hadn't happened for, for an extended period. You saw flying hours for pilots and aircraft suddenly increasing. This was the time at which Russia resumed its, its long-range air patrols, probing the defenses of Western countries. And then you had the armed conflict with Georgia in 2008, where a Russian army that was effectively unchanged since the end of the end of the USSR uh, a decade and a half previously found that it won the war in Georgia, but it exposed a lot of its own shortcomings and the means in which it wasn't really fit for, for 21st century conflict. And that's what kickstarted this transformation program that the Russian armed forces went through, re-equipping, re-arming, reorganizing, uh, trying to completely change the, the nature of Russia's armed forces, not just the ground forces, but also the, the air force as well, to try to get it ready for 21st century conflict. Now, that is a that was a long and complicated process, which went in fits and starts, but it developed the, the armed force that we saw in operation in uh, Crimea in 2014, in Syria in 2015, 2016. The real surprise for a lot of analysts looking at the Russian military was that the modernization, the, the new, ready, well-equipped, modern part of the Russian armed forces was actually only a, a thin crust. And as soon as that was stripped away by the early stages of combat in Ukraine, what you had left was the same old, unreformed, deeply corrupt, poorly equipped Russian armed force that was always there. So that's what, what Ukraine is dealing with at the moment. Russia scraping the barrel for both equipment and people to pour them in in a much lower tech, much more primitive form of warfare than we than everybody expected them to be waging. Yeah. Now, one of the other uh, previous, uh, other than Ukraine, the other operation that the Russian military has been involved in recently uh, is in Syria. Can you get into more details how that has played a role in the Russian military? Syria was a testing ground for the Russian armed forces, for all of the different weapon systems that they had been developing through this, this process of military rearmament and re-equipment uh, for people as well and organizations. They found that uh, they could test and train under operational conditions for all of the different things that they thought they would need to do in a major armed conflict. And that's the reason why we often saw in Syria weapon systems being used that were completely inappropriate for the task at hand, uh, using missiles from thousands of kilometers away to see if they worked, uh, deploying an aircraft carrier, which ended up being no more than a, a glorified um, airplane ferry to actually deliver aircraft there to see if it worked, and testing logistics systems and communication systems and leadership and so on 
while minimizing the exposure of Russia's main armed forces to the actual fighting. This was a facilitating role where they brought together the forces of, of Iran and the Syrian, um, the Syrian government forces to do the bulk of the fighting while Russia was providing advisors, air support, and so on. But it gave Russia this opportunity to actually see how all of the ideas and the equipment that they were developing would actually work in real life. And of course, the real victims of, the, of this were the Syrian people who found that uh, they were on the receiving end of the, the kind of vicious warfare that Russia prosecutes. Now, moving back to Ukraine, can we get into more detail about how the Russian military has been used in Ukraine? And perhaps let's divide this up. First, let's talk about how it was used during the original uh, or the initial 2014 conflict. And then later on, we could move on to the current ongoing conflict. Yes, it's it's right to divide it up into phases. Even in the current ongoing conflict, we've we've seen several different phases during which there's been a different character or nature of the Russian armed forces on display. Uh, what surprised people in 2014 was the extent to which the Russian armed forces had changed and the extent to which the transformation process actually seemed to have delivered results. Because it was only six years after the armed conflict in Georgia uh, in 2008. And then we saw an unreconstructed post-Soviet army that basically looked exactly the same as the one that had gone to war in Chechnya in the previous decade. And now in 2014, everything was radically different. Person, the troops behaved differently. They looked differently. They were far better trained. Uh, these were Russian special forces that were well-equipped, well-dressed, uh, well-disciplined, and were working according to a, a well-thought-through plan, which was a huge surprise for most people who were watching this. Then uh, in the ongoing fighting in the east of Ukraine, you saw a lot of the other elements of how Russia wages war coming into play. You saw the military intelligence structures setting up proxy forces in order to, to destabilize the, uh, the Ukrainian government and in order to seize control in those eastern countries. And it was an enormous uh, propaganda victory by Russia that these um, organizations were described in the end by Western media as so-called Russian-backed separatists as opposed to Russian proxy forces. It was a means by which Russia could hold up its hands and say, this is nothing to do with us. And it was enormously successful. So that ground on for the subsequent eight years until we had the invasion in February 2022, when Russia had effectively surrounded Ukraine on three sides with, with an invading force. An invading force which was completely inadequate for the task at hand because Russia had fallen into the trap of believing its own propaganda, thinking that it wouldn't have to fight a war, it didn't prepare for a war. And it thought it wouldn't have to fight because it believed the the idea um, that had Russia had been pushing to the rest of the world for so long, that Ukraine isn't a real country, that Ukrainians themselves are just uh, frustrated and slightly inferior Russians just waiting for liberal liberation from this so-called neo-Nazi clique that had seized power in a coup in Kiev and so on and so on. If all of that was true then it made perfect sense for Russia to simply uh, expect to be able to kick in the door and Ukraine would fall into their lap. So it was a huge surprise for the leadership in the Kremlin when this didn't happen. And they found themselves actually involved in a shooting war against Ukrainians who, against all expectations, actually decided to resist. Uh, 
And that's what's led us to this steady evolution of the different ways in which Russia has been prosecuting this war and Russia's forces falling back on old methods. It was only on day five of the, the latest phase of the war in February uh, 2022 when Russia, realizing that things were not going its way on the battlefield, fell back on missile attacks, indiscriminate missile attacks on major cities in Ukraine, because that's what Russia knows best. Now, kind of related to the Russian military a little bit, but uh, Russian influence around the world, it's been gaining a lot of attention, is the use of what are commonly called private military companies, PMCs. And Russian PMCs have been active not only in Ukraine, especially uh in uh, Bakhmut and uh, Salazar, Saladar, excuse me, but also even in uh, faraway places like Africa and even Asia. And the most famous of these is Wagner, but Wagner is not the only one. Can you explain how these groups play a role in, Rus in Russian geopolitics? Yes, quite. Wagner is by a long way the most prominent and the most famous out of all of these groups. But yes, as you say, it's certainly not the only one. This is not a, a new phenomenon. It is one of the ways in which Russia um, subcontracts the expansion of its influence around the world. And that's not only necessarily in uh, in military terms or provision of security as, as Wagner does. It also looks for ways of expanding state influence through the, uh, the organizations, the commercial organizations, the oligarchs, all of the different means that it can exert Russian power um, and then claim it if it's a success or, or discard it if it's actually a failure. And in that respect, it's a very uh, cheap and efficient way for Russia to make inroads around the world simply by uh, outsourcing this, by allowing um, organizations like Wagner or other organizations that are run by major figures in, in the Russian economy to take all the risk upon themselves, not coming out of the state budget, but uh, private enterprise moving in and reaping the rewards if they succeed. But if they fail, then Russia can, again, wash its hands and say, this is this is nothing to do with us. Now, the dangers of that are have become very clear in the context of the, the war in Ukraine, the latest phase of it, because to the surprise of a lot of countries in the West, in Europe and North America, there are plenty of places around the world that are quite content to stand back and not condemn what Russia has done. Uh, even countries in Africa that are uh, viciously condemning colonialism, uh, not actually condemning Russia for waging a, a colonial war of reconquest. Uh, countries that were threatened with um, starvation as a result of Russia's blockade on Ukrainian grain, not actually condemning Russia for that either. And that is the result of a, a long-term campaign for gaining influence and gaining friends in the different continents of the world that Russia's been playing out uh, in plain sight for several years. Wagner the the way in which Wagner provides services to unpleasant regimes in Africa is just one element of that. It's a much broader campaign. Yeah, one thing that has always interested me about the Wagner and these PMCs, I almost think of them as a continuation of because in the nineties the Russian military completely like disintegrated and there was like a rise of a lot of these private armies, private security firms and all that and there was a joke uh, at the time that the only difference between them and the police was the uniform and i often kind of think is this kind of a continuation but now they're being more informally used by the state rather than purely pursuing their own uh their own ends in a way that's what i've always kind of 
been thinking about. That's one way of looking at it. But in fact, all of these different elements that you're talking about, they've been in flux and the boundaries between them have been porous. So uh, the other element that you need to factor in there between besides the armed forces, the state, the police and so on is actually organized crime. Uh, because in that period that you're talking about, the the 1990s, uh, when basic state services broke down, uh, organized crime flourished, but then actually moved into providing some of the services you'd normally associate with the state. Uh, meanwhile, you have an unpaid uh, military and a lot of people with a lot of um, time on their hands and weapons. And so you have this strange symbiotic relationship between organized crime protection rackets and security services provided by freelancing special forces officers. And so it shouldn't be uh, in that context all that surprising that you have this um, disability for uh, Russians with a certain skill set to morph between being organized criminals or military intelligence officers or law enforcement because effectively uh, those those groups to some extent merged and then coalesced and then split again. So it's it's a completely different setup and a completely different pool of manpower than what you would expect in uh, in a Western country. Yeah, uh, getting back to organized crime, you talk a little bit about how that's part of like Russian uh, influence. Uh, campaigns uh, around the world and i know going back to the 90s i remember how they were even saying how russian organized crime was very prolific uh, around the world outside of the former soviet union that's right it's part of the same syndrome it's the fact that um russia can call on the services of organized crime to to deliver state power or to do something in a particular country because of that same syndrome because there isn't that strict dividing line between uh, between organized crime and the state. They're not in opposition to each other. They're instead a, a gray zone and fluid boundaries between them so that Russia can actually, um, when it wants to get something done, it has a much wider range of tools to call on to do it than, than a Western democracy would. It can call on private enterprise. It can call on organized crime, the intelligence services. All of these are, are part of a toolkit. And that's why when considering the threat from Russia, Western governments and law enforcement agencies need to think about it in a much broader sense than just the obvious tools of state intervention. Yeah. And of course, another way, another part of the toolkit is what you call disinformation operations. Can you uh, explain how those uh, operate? It's another part of the information warfare that we spoke about earlier. And in some ways, it's uh, it's a part of it that's become uh, particularly prominent because it's something that everybody can see. The way in which Russia tries to persuade audiences around the world that uh, that it should be allowed to get away with what it wants. Now, I talked a little bit about the effect that that has had across Africa, countries that um, that you would normally have thought would be condemning what Russia is doing, instead turning a blind eye or actively encouraging it. But that works on societies as well. Russia's realized that if you influence the mass consciousness of a, a country beyond its borders, that will influence its policy because elected leaders are sensitive to the same information flows as the people who vote for them. And that's just one element in trying to ensure that Russia gets its way, that it has a permissive environment to get away with what it wants to do. Now, it is prominent, as I said, and it is sometimes um, given an importance that is possibly more than it actually deserves. Sometimes the the actions of uh, of troll armies on social media are treated as the actual 
center of gravity of Russia's information operations. But again, they're just one toolkit among many. Disinformation is important, but disinformation is just one of the means by which Russia tries to change the, the policies of a given country or to change its society so that it does not um, stand firmly in opposition to what Russia wants to do. Now, aside from Africa, are there any other parts of the world where Russia may be concentrating more of these type of operations, or is it kind of, you know, just ubiquitous, uh, kind of equally around the world, or, or what? Again, there... Africa's um, Africa's the most prominent one, uh, but again, this is an area where uh, Russia suddenly, in about 2018 or so, changed its tactics and changed its focus. Up until that point, uh, whenever Russia was pouring resources into a relationship with a given country, it was for some obvious reason. There was some something it wanted to pursue, either a traditional relationship or arms sales or selling one of the very few commodities that Russia can sell, for instance, food or nuclear power plants. In 2018 or thereabouts, there was a sudden shift of emphasis and Russia started spreading its bets across the board. So it looked for influence around the world, including in areas where it hadn't really had much of a, a historical interest previously, like Asia Pacific. And this was um, capitalizing on previous campaigns where Russia had had bought the loyalty of small countries with direct subsidies or direct donations. But now they were looking for uh, for as much support globally as they could find. In some cases, just because it's a, a straightforward numbers game, you want people to vote for you in, in international organizations where votes count, like the UN General Assembly. Uh, and in other cases, the, the purpose of this only became clear later. And that's what we were talking about earlier, the way in which, if you look at the the way countries have voted in those uh, General Assembly meetings, for example, about condemning Russia, a lot of them are abstaining, and they're the ones where Russia has put a lot of effort into getting them on side. So now it's reaping the benefits. Yeah. So the war in Ukraine is still ongoing as of now of March 2023. What has been the impact of this conflict on Russia and its relationship to the West thus thus far. Uh, Russia decided that it no longer needed the relationship with the West in the run-up to the war. Uh, and this was part of the process that we saw in terms of Russia's preparations, turning its back on uh, what had previously been important to Russia, that uh, maintaining that constructive relationship with the West, even while you you do all of the things that you might think would, uh, would ordinarily destroy it. They finally stepped away from that in the second half of 2021 and changed gear in a way, changed their strategy strategic focus suddenly were were visibly pushing for the outcomes that they wanted and not counting the counting the damage and that of course is where their support from the rest of the world came in because if you destroy a relationship with the west uh, by finally making it clear that you are going to embark on uh, on a war of reconquest uh, and you know that people are going to oppose this then you need relationships with the rest of the world you need uh, china and india and other parts of the world to to actually continue uh, that relationship with you so that you have that global support in terms of the the ongoing relationship with the west well the longer the war goes on unfortunately the more we will hear people um saying that at some point we have to rebuild a relationship with russia there's a lot of optimism that we hear at the moment that once the active phase of the fighting in ukraine is over it might be possible to go back to a working relationship with russia which unfortunately i think means that uh, even though russia has demonstrated 
how it sees the West and how it sees itself and how that's completely incompatible with the security of Europe or of, of the West, people still are um, succumbing to this instinct of looking for a constructive relationship and a better relationship with Russia based on false premises, based on appealing to things that Russia doesn't actually want. So for the time being, there's a realization of, of just what Russia is and how the, the, pri the biggest priority is to defend ourselves against Russia because Russia wants to harm us, our societies, our countries. But that is a very fragile realization. And you see so many indications that people really don't want to believe that and would much rather go back to a situation where they're playing nice with Russia. Yeah. Now, uh, it's always difficult to predict the future, uh, but in your best educated guess, what does the future for Russia hold in, in your educated opinion? We've heard a lot of talk about how the the outcome of the war in Ukraine might transform Russia. And a lot of that is based on optimism. First of all, the idea that Ukraine must necessarily win this war, which unfortunately is not a foregone conclusion, especially if the West continues to be so reticent in providing um, support for Ukraine, war-winning support, including the ability to, to strike into Russia itself, which so far Ukraine has been denied and therefore plays into this fiction that Russia wants to tell itself that it's not really at war, it's only a special military operation uh, somewhere outside the country. But on top of that, there's also the, the optimism that once Russia is defeated, if it is defeated, then that will bring about some kind of positive change in Russia, whether it is the um, regime change removing Putin, uh, whether it's a change of heart or change of mind within Russia about what it wants from the rest of the world, and turning back to looking for a, a some kind of constructive relationship with the West. Unfortunately, those are very, very remote possibilities, because in order to bring about that change, you've got to change the minds of enormous sections of Russian society, not just the leadership, but also change these deeply held views among ordinary Russians, that it's a normal and natural state of affairs for, for Russia to be invading its neighbors and bringing them back under Russian control. So the prospects for change, unfortunately, are mostly change for the worse. We're still in the process of Russia clamping down on its own population. And we haven't got yet to a phase where uh, Russia realizes that it was a mistake to launch the invasion of Ukraine, because as far as Russia is concerned, if the conflict ends tomorrow, they've won because they've regained a certain amount of territory. They've taken losses in the process, but it's not the kind of losses that Russia uh, takes as a serious deterrent to doing it again in five or 10 years whenever Russia feels that it is strong enough to have another go. Now, you mentioned in the in your previous answer about how the West needs to defend itself from Russia. And in your view, how can the West best respond to Russia, uh, especially now with the war going on in Ukraine? And also, how could it best understand Russia? And I know that's a tricky thing with that old saying that it's always an enigma wrapped in a riddle. Yeah, the the striking thing about um, that that question, how should the West respond, is that the answer has never changed. It's always been the same, and it always will be the same. And it is contain the damage that Russia can do. 
protect us, ourselves, our allies, our friends, particularly the frontline states, from the ways in which Russia wants to attack them. And that is not just in terms of straightforward military conquest, but also all of the ways in which it seeks to do damage to their societies, their economies, and so on. That has always been the answer. Close off those opportunities for Russia to do harm. Uh, and that will continue to be so regardless of Russia's future, whether it continues to be a, a strong, coherent state that actually wants to, to launch organized attacks on its neighbors, or as some people are suggesting, it fragments into a, an unstable, chaotic mass that has spillover effects on its neighbors. You've still got to protect those neighbors in exactly the same way. And in terms of understanding Russia, the second part of your question, well, that really goes to the um, the previous book that I wrote, which was called Moscow Rules, What Drives Russia to Confront the West? And the key point there is Russia is driven to confront the West by its own preconceptions, by its own ideas of its own history, by its own mistaken ideas of what the West is. So the two books kind of go together. Moscow Rules was about why Russia attacks us and uh, Russia's war on everybody is about how Russia attacks us. But the why, unfortunately, is not going to go away. And that is that has to be the baseline for understanding how to deal with Russia in the future, that they do not like us, they do not want to be like us, and they are looking for means and methods and opportunities to attack us wherever possible. Well, this has been a very uh, interesting and fascinating discussion, uh, but I think we're he heading towards the end here. Do you have any final uh, thoughts, maybe touch on anything uh, mentioned in the book that we didn't weren't able to discuss yet? I think we've uh, we've done pretty well in covering the the different themes of the book. I mean, the one thing that I do emphasize when people are talking about this is it affects ordinary, real people. It affects everybody. That's the reason for for the title of the book, whether it's in ways that they actually recognize or, or ways that they don't. There is not anybody in Western societies that hasn't in some way or another felt the impact of what Russia does. And if people uh, question that, if they wonder about it, I go to very um, simple examples like uh, cyber attacks. Uh, anybody that is online or offline will have paid the cost of Russian cyber attacks and ransomware attacks, forcing major companies and governments to actually rebuild their computer networks and uh, and pay the costs of dealing with these attacks. Even if it just comes out of your tax bill, you're still feeling the impact of what Russia does and Russia's hostility. And that is one extreme of the scale. At the other extreme, you can be in Ukraine and your apartment block can be flattened by a Russian missile and can lose all of your friends and family. That's an enormous spectrum of harms that Russia does but we are all somewhere along that line. Uh, we usually like to end our interviews by asking our guests, uh, what are you working on now? <laughs> there's always something. Uh, there's always some current issue that um, that is to do with how Russia is harming our societies. That, that's currently the focus of, of attention. One of the, the things that I've been working on for some time now, and actually the, the next publication of mine that's going to come out through Chatham House, the, uh, the think tank in London, is about Russia's nuclear threats. It's about the way Russia has exploited nuclear intimidation and nuclear fears to try to constrain what the West does uh, in terms of supporting Ukraine, and has actually done so extremely successfully because President Joe Biden, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, they refer specifically to what Russia says about the prospect of nuclear war, 
to justify not giving Ukraine what it needs to actually win its own real war against Russia. So that's a, a highly successful campaign that Russia has undertaken. And that's what I uh, try to deconstruct in this next publication that's coming out. For the time being, that nuclear rhetoric has gone quiet, but it is going to come back, especially if Russia feels starts to feel that it is not winning the war swiftly enough. So we need to be ready for it when it does. Sounds fascinating. Maybe when you uh, complete uh, that project, we can have you back on the podcast. Sure thing. Care uh, Giles, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.